electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Frank Holland in for the Judge Scott Wapner, front and center this hour at the road ahead for investors following a pretty rocky week on Wall Street. The question today, how should you position yourself in this higher for longer world? Plus, we are following breaking new developments at this hour as more auto workers walk off the jobs. We have a live report from our own Phil LeBeau. That's coming up. But first, we want to get to our investment committee. Joining us for this hour, we have a great panel. We have Shannon Sakosha, Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss, and Rob Seachin. And now let's get a quick check at the market at noon Eastern time right now. Taking a look, we're seeing the Dow pretty close to its highs of the day. The S&P, similar story. The Nasdaq just off of its highs. Important note, the 10-year yield right now at 4.43, easing a bit from where it was, but still pretty close to its highest level since 2007. So I think that's really where we got to start here, Bryn. A lot of disruption ever since j indicated higher for longer. Where do you go from here? And I think it's important to note uh, the Nasdaq and the S&P also on a three-week losing streak as well. I think you actually have to go a little bit further because July 31st was really the peak in the S&P. And then all of a sudden, the two-year and the 10-year start moving up. And I think as soon as the the two-year got to five and the 10-years hit that 425, all of a sudden, equities can't handle that. And so you're seeing really that digestion of higher for longer, which Jay Powell just reiterated. And so I think that ultimately, this is going to be settled because typically, Stocks follow bonds, but right now bonds have been following stocks and that all year long stocks have said no recession, soft landing, rates are going to cut next year, while bonds have been saying inversion, which means recession, recession, recession. And now bonds are saying, hey, you know what? I think the stock market was right. And so you're getting that uninversion of the of the bond market. And to me, that's the whole story here, because you really have to re-rate what can multiples be, how high can the stock market go if we're going to continue to have multiples, be rates be higher for longer. Why? Same question for you. I mean, what's next? We're about to enter Q4 next week. Um, we've had a, a pretty strong start to the year, but a lot of disruption recently. Also, some big macro things and some U.S. specific things like a possible government shutdown, um, other issues here in the U.S. Yeah, so uh, what's next is earnings season. And as opposed to the last year or so, expectations are higher. They're more optimistic. So now you've got to actually bridge that optimism with reality. I personally think there's a chance it falls short. Look, I, I think the market, I've been cautious in the market for a number of weeks, remain very cautious on it. I've trimmed exposure. Here's the issue. I do believe we go into recession. I don't believe there'll be a soft landing. I'm still amazed by some of the lunacy out there that as recently as a, as a month or two ago, some strategists, some whatever money managers saying the Fed's going to start cutting rates. They're not going to cut rates. They're going to leave rates the way they are. So we've seen a delayed reaction to the massive tightening cycle that we've had 
I don't think it gets any better. I think it gets worse, and there are a number of factors. Additionally, inflation is not really under control, okay? We've had the easy move down from 9% to 3.5%, 4% pick a number, but guess what? We're poised for it to go higher. Why? Because of energy, because of the UPS strike, because of the UAW strike, because the Inflation Reduction Act. We haven't even started to deploy capital. Wait till we start doing it. So you've got all the triggers for inflation going higher. So you cannot tolerate rates like that. We're a consumer-driven economy. Two-thirds of the economy is driven by consumers. Now you see these cars rolling off leases. So I've had two. Fortunately, I can afford it. But the cost of leasing a car, the cost of buying a car, has gone up 20 to 40%. So where do consumers make choices? In addition, you've still seen, while rents may be coming down a little bit in some areas, basically they're still on the rise. So where do you take it from? You gotta pay more for energy, okay? It's not like it's not, it's not like you've seen grocery prices come down measurably. Good point. So it all adds to pressure on the consumer that drives the economy. And guess who's gonna pay for the UAW wage increases? You, Bryn, me, Rob, Maybe not Rob, because he's America's guest, so who knows? <laughs> but in general, it comes to the consumer. That further you know, takes wallet. So, so Weiss, to your point, as if we didn't get the message from Jay Powell, uh, Boston Fed President Susan Collins saying today she feels that we need to keep uh, rates higher for longer. She is a voting member this cycle. So I think you're right. The Fed is just right. trying to make it clear so, to the market. Right. Whatever you thought was going to happen, we're trying to make it clear. Right. So final word, past is not prologue, okay? Just because the equity market has held these levels for the top line, lots of stocks have suffered, right? Doesn't mean that's continue to be the case. I believe it's a delayed reaction and the markets go lower. They definitely don't go higher and hit new highs. All right, Rob Seachin, again, we were mentioning uh, the S&P and the NASDAQ on multi-week slides, moving a little bit higher today, but still, how do you move forward? We're right on the precipice of Q4. So, you know, I'm really Steve's guest, not America's guest. And when you join Steve at his country club, you have to come off the top rope on the uh, the receipt. This guy helped me meet my minimum in one (laughs) one day. One One day. day, One day for a month. Actually, for the whole season. You know, it's ironic that you're bringing up these first class problems as Weiss is highlighting the problems for the middle, for middle America. Yeah, for everybody else. But so let's focus on the markets just for a minute. Really seriously, we're in a period of digestion, and the question for investors is how do you stay invested through this period of digestion when there's a lot of risks out there, the risks that Steve cited, all of which are putting up, uh, putting inflationary pressure on consumers and are going to have an ultimate, maybe delayed, but ultimate effect on spending for both businesses and the consumer sector. We just, don't, we just don't know when. So how do you stay engaged? You stay engaged by focusing on companies with industry-leading profitability, companies that have competitive advantages, healthy free cash flow, that have built these moats um, through exceptional leadership that allow them to survive. And most importantly, you pay attention to valuation. And I'm going to tell you something that's very interesting. We have these corrections all the time. We are in the midst of a correction where we've tested the 100-day moving average on the S&P. We're getting ready to test the 200-day moving average. And at that level, stocks are going to be valued at about 17 times earnings. That's not historically high, historically low. You have a number of negative catalyzers in the short run that I think you have to pay attention to so you don't get vaporized. But as we come out of the backside of this, it is all dependent on what can earnings do and what's the valuation setup? Because I do think the Fed is going to be here. It's going to be higher for longer. It's going to be a tax on corporate profits. And so you can only pay up 
for companies that are delivering. And that's why the message from the Fed on Wednesday was so important. It, it, it's been that message. But the markets finally woke up to it. And you have to pay attention to really high priced stocks right. because they're more vulnerable. Shannon, uh, agree. Do, is it finally time to start paying attention to valuation? Do you think the markets finally woke up and realized, hey, maybe when the Fed says they're going to keep rates longer, they're actually going to do it? Well, at MB Private Wealth, we've, we've been saying that all year. And, and obviously, the first half of the year, particularly um, for the top end of the, the mega cap tech trade, you know, that has, been, uh, that has proven to not be the case. I think one of the things to really point out is if we go back to 2022, and um, the other members of the committee have, have sort of have sort of touched on this, but I want to make it very clear. We go back to 2022. Uh, if you look at the correlation between um, high multiple uh, growth stocks, technology in particular, you know that they were concerned about higher rates in the changing rate environment. The first half of this year, um, we saw tech stocks, and despite the fact that rates remain um, higher than you know what we've experienced over the last several years, so it seemed like there was a disconnect. But really, what was happening was that you know I think from an equity perspective, the rate environment seemed more known. It seemed more certain. And now what we've experienced over the last several days and, and weeks, really, is this increased volatility in yields. And, and you know, to, to Steve's point earlier, I wouldn't necessarily call it lunacy that people are looking for the Fed to cut rates. They had that in their dot plot for, for next year. And obviously, they brought down those expectations. But I think what, you're, what, what investors right now are really struggling with is, Okay, if we are, you know, at the end of this rate hiking cycle and rate cuts are being pushed out further in, in, into the future, will that uh, be offset in part by a better than expected economy? Not a strong economy, because I don't think that's really the call that we're going to have this blockbuster year for growth in the U.S. economy in particular next year. But will the hindrance, the overhang, if you will, of a higher for longer rate environment be offset by economic growth? And I think that's the big question as you look at where, where you need to be allocated coming into 2024. And frankly, it's a big question. Transmission of higher rates to households and to companies has perhaps taken longer than expected. And so it begs the question of how interest rate sensitive we really are. Um, but that could just be a timing situation. And so I think there is room for caution here, particularly as you're looking at your overall portfolio construction. Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, caution might be a wise decision right now. There's a pretty broad wall of worry for Wall Street. Weiss was listing some of them. Number one, obviously, higher for longer from the Fed. Uh, rising oil prices, we'll talk about that just in a minute. The rising bond yields, we are talking about it right now. So, Weiss, I want to come back over to you. Which one of these things in this wall of worry, what's the number one thing that you're worried about? You mentioned wage inflation. You mentioned some of the other things. Is there one thing that you think investors, at least in the near term, need to pay attention to? Rates. Rates staying higher, pure and simple. All emanates from there. That's where everything comes from. Rates where we are is a function of wage inflation. Rates where we are is a function of the inflation we'll see from the autos, from the IRA. So it's all about rates. And one thing you say to Shannon, yes, in the dot plot, in the, towards the end of last year, it showed that the Fed may cut rates. Number one, dot plot's rarely correct, right? It's a moving target, number one. Number two, people look for rate cuts this year and the first quarter next year. That is not going to happen. The Fed's been transparent and clear about that. That's why I say it's lunacy. You've got the, you've got the guy Powell up there saying higher for longer for a year. Do they think he was joking? 
So now but, they're, but they're worse on the I agree, Steve. You know, I, I, agree, I agree with you, Steve. <laughs> I agree, higher for longer. I agree. Yeah. I, I, I'm just saying that it was in the dot plot, so it's not right. that it, it wasn't telegraphed I think we at all, all agree. for 2024. They're, we all agree that rates are going to stay higher for longer. It's really, it's, it's really, you know, the market has finally woken up to that. But I think that this panel has been saying that for quite some time. But the real implication on this is the delayed effects on business and the consumer. And when does it impact consumer spending? That might be a job function that that happens after corporate earnings get imp implicated in with higher rates. So I think it's just a matter of when, not if. And also, and also the. If you, you, you have to understand that we've had 13 years of zero rates. And so I think Free the, money. <laughs> the, the premise of cutting next year, why that was so bullish, is that things will break. I mean, right. we do have $900 billion of CRE loans that need to be refinanced just next year. And so you also have credit card rates are well above 20%. You have student loans coming off. And so if you have higher for longer, we are a debtor economy. When anyone, to your point, has to transact in that economy, the rate of that interest rate is three, four times. And so to me, that, that puts the event of something, an event occurring next year, a negative event occurring, okay. much higher if you keep those rates for longer. Put in perspective. Wait, one second, Steve. Yeah. Let's, let's stay on this theme of rates moving higher. There is a big debate breaking out on Wall Street. Bill Ackman tweeting this last night. We're going to read it in part. I believe long-term rates will rise further from here as such. We remain short bonds. But that is not what Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gunlock told Scott Wapner earlier this week. The bond king saying this. Take a listen. A year and three quarters ago, bonds were stupidly overvalued, and as rich as stocks were when they began that bear market, uh, they were cheap to bonds. That's, that's changed by a factor of four. So you've gone from bonds were, were, were doubly rich to stocks, to now bonds are doubly cheap to stocks. All right, that was Jeffrey Gunlock right there. You, you were champing at the bit there, yeah. Weiss. Come back. Well, first of all, let me, let me speak to this. They're not necessarily saying different things. Ackman's talking about rates specifically. You know, what, what we hear Jeff talking about is the value. Value is relative. It's value, it's relative to what other out, is out there. So they can still agree. But what Jeff is saying is that it's gotten a lot cheaper relative to equities. So I don't think they're different. Right. Now, in terms of what I was going to say, keep in mind to Brent's point, we've got a whole generation of investors, a whole generation of consumers that have lived with zero rates, with free money. So they haven't experienced a sticker shock. Then coming out of the pandemic where people couldn't spend money because they couldn't leave their homes and because they were thirsting for, for, for experiences, et cetera, to buy stuff in stores. So they, so they had this massive you know, savings. Now they've depleted that. So that's why it's all coming together. Now, I'm not saying the market's going to crash. We've been through that. I don't think that'll happen. But I'm just saying it just doesn't pay to be in equities as much. When, to Jeff's point, you can get a 5% two-year, 5-plus percent two-year. I mean, certainly a, lot of, out. certainly a lot of competition for equities. Rob? Yeah, I mean, Bill's been on that trade for a while, to right. his credit. I mean, this is something I think he talked about in, in July or August. And it's been the right trade, and interest rates have been in a significant uptrend. Let's remember that uh, uh, there's been a lot of casualties in trying to pick the top 
in rates. Because if you're wrong, the uh, the implications are pretty significant. But, but where is so, the top? I mean, yesterday Richard that, Bernstein that, advisors that, on Fast Money saying the 10-year could go to 4.8, maybe even 5%. And we agree. We agree. So the top is not here. You're going to start to see the top when you see the implications for higher rates manifesting themselves. Because the rate stated is not the rate being experienced. Until the rate stated is the rate experienced, that's when you start to see economic damage. And that is when you're going to start well, to see a peaking in rates. Let me ask you a broader question. Are you concerned about why these rates are going higher right now? As we always mention, prices move inversely to rates. Um, people will obviously want a premium to take on U.S. debt. Are you concerned? Does that signal something that's not only going to shake up you know, the equity market, but just the economy in general? Bryn, you're nodding. Right. Well, I think that rates are moving up because the economy is improving. And so that's like 101 bond yields steepen is an economic improvement and bond yields decline. That's why they invert as the economy is weakening. And so I think you have a mixture of maybe QT, right? We don't talk about that enough. True. We have QT, plus you have economic strengthening. And I think you have those two coming together. But I don't think people will always buy U.S. Treasuries, always until they don't, right? That's just <laughs> the reality is there's an insatiable demand because Bonds are relative to, to one another. What are you going to go buy bonds in China, bonds in, bonds in Russia? No, you're going to continue to buy U.S. Treasuries, but at what price? But I do think you have some technical factors happening here that we have gone above that four that 425 on the 10-year. That ends up be, to be now the floor, and that ends up to be support versus before that was resistance. And so technically, it feels like yields want to continue to move higher. And I think that will continue to put pressure on multiple expansion, which is really what we've seen this year in stocks. Right. Shannon, we don't want to leave you out of this conversation. Any take on what Gunlock had to say or what Ackman had to say? No, I think I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement I, I, with the, the rest of the committee. I think the important piece here is just how do you affect that exposure. And so if you talk about what could be a coming risk as the rate environment changes, it's really that reinvestment risk in the front end of the curve, Frank. You know, at some point, the yields in, you know, for short, very short duration bonds will not be as high. And so at what point do you start to lengthen your duration in portfolios and make sure that you're setting yourself up for, you know, a reasonable total return expectation for the next several years? But when you talk about lengthening duration, just from a market perspective right now, that would be very incremental. I mean, you don't have to necessarily go out too far on the curve to be lengthening duration in a more macro context. So I think that's really what's the important comment here is that bonds, whether they're, you know, attractive at certain points on the curve, the reality is, is that the overall total return expectation is much better than it was in a, for bonds in a zero rate environment. And so people should be thinking about that as a lever as they build their portfolios for 24. All right, we're going to talk much more about this next week. We're going to hear from Bill Ackman at CNBC's Delivering Alpha Summit. He is sitting down with our Scott Wapner, and it's not too late to register for the can't-miss event of the year. Just head to CNBCEvents.com. That's one of many great conversations at Delivering Alpha. All right, now let's turn to our call of the day. J.P. Morgan upgrading the energy sector to overweight. It's the best-performing sector this month. Brent, I want to start with you. You own the XLE. Right. I, we um, actually on RSPG own a bunch of a bunch of energy energy names. I think that their call that I agree with is really 80 is the new 60. Whereas 60 is where we where we treaded water around the price of WTI for a long time. I feel that 80 for structural reasons, both 
short and long terms that that $80 price is, is there. I will say that the price of oil has moved up much faster than the underlying stocks over the last month because, once again, you need oil to stay above that $80, $90 range for a period of time to actually embed themselves into the revenues of these companies. But I still think that, and you can't just buy them all, by the way. I mean, I own Diamondback and I own Devon. One's up 15 and one's down 15. So there is dispersion of return. But I think generally the sector, you're going to continue to have a, a sector very cheap, free cash flow yield of close to 11%. You have people who are underweight the asset class. I think most people rent the space um, versus own the space. And I know that the CEOs and the CFOs are doing a lot to get those renters to become owners of that asset class. But for the time being, I think you have more renters. But it's nice to see you know, JP Morgan back on this trade, which they'd really been sitting out or earlier this year. I mean, back in a big way. I mean, you look a little closer into that call. They say there's a potential, Siege, you have a broad energy ownership. For Brent crude to go up to 150 a barrel, and to your point, they're basically saying 150 is the new 100. You know, we, we would love to see that, and it might, it might require that for us to break through what we think is resistance. You know, there's been two very strong months in energy, not that it's changing our thesis in the names that we own, but I think they're a little late with this call because, you know, these stocks have just moved so far so fast. Now, fundamentally, energy is still undersupplied. The cost of production in the U.S. is still very, very high. You have cuts coming offline, and so this is really a supply story that's really, really well supported. And so we like what we own in the space. Uh, we've tended to be more surgical, focused on valuation and the best players in the industry, the Conoco's, the EOG's, a, a little more speculation with a little Suncor energy in there, a little CNQ. And, you know, to, to Bryn's point, it's one of those sectors that we think we can be overweight, and a little bit of it has to do with this fundamental rotation that we think we're going to see away from tech and into some of the cyclical value names. There's been huge indexification of these markets, and if you have that type of rotation, energy has to be a beneficiary. So, All right, so Weiss, you own Occidental. I, you're yeah. making a face when I said 150 is the new 100. Because I've heard it so many times before. I've heard 150, I've heard 200. Look, the, the what I love about the J.P. Morgan call is that I'm now not the last one to get in on the trade because <laughs> I bought Oxy a few weeks ago. So I blame Rob because if Rob were a better salesperson, when he came out almost two years ago and said, we love energy when it was really on the balls of his ass, that's when I should have gotten involved. But he's not a very convincing guy to be here. But he's <laughs> had a, he's had a great trade there. Not only kidding, he's, he's extremely convincing. But uh, look, we've seen these times before. And you know what? The best cure for high energy prices is high energy prices. I've heard that so one that's before why too. Sickle. Leon so that's, so that's why you only that's why you only rent it. Take a look at what crude has. It's not like crude was you know a hundred you know a year ago is now two hundred now. It goes through cycles. So it's like the airlines, it's like the autos. You got to rent it. You got to get in when everybody hates them, which I didn't do. I got in when everybody loved them. And as a result, they bought Oxy, even though oil's moved up to Brin's point, it's not been a sustainable level. So I'm actually underwater on the trade. But I figured I'll follow the brightest guy, the best investor in the world. He owns Oxy, so that's why I bought it. So, Shane, coming over to you, I mean, surprised to see oil continue to move to the upside with rates increasing, high, multi-year highs right now, looking at the 10-year highest level since 2007. Are you worried or are thinking there might be some demand destruction because of this higher cost of capital? Well, that's why energy prices were where they were earlier this year, Frank. And so I think, you know, with those improved economic projections, you know, the, the reality is, is that 
you know, the the price to Bryn's point being closer to 60 had nothing to do with supply. It was about expectations for demand. And so supply hasn't changed. Um, and I would say that, you know, if you look across the board, I think the majority of investors know that we have an, a, a supply-demand mismatch in energy supply over the course of the next two years or so. So I think that's just really what's playing out in energy prices. And Bryn made an incredible point because we often talk about the correlation between energy prices and energy stock performance. But again, they, they don't, it's not perfectly timed. And so I think if you anticipate that these, this is going to be sort of the new foundation floor level, um, you could start to see there being perhaps more enthusiasm or more construction just, you know, on not only energy prices themselves, but also on uh, um, producers um, and, uh, you know, pipelines and, and those that can potentially benefit from this new uh, stabilized level. All right. So rising oil prices, one factor in our wall of worry. So is the UAW negotiation. And we have some breaking news right now. More auto workers, they're walking off the job right now as the UAW strike escalates. Our Phil LeBeau is live in Michigan with the very latest here. Phil? Frank, we are at the uh, Mopar facility in Centerline, Michigan, just to the north of Detroit. Behind me, some of the more than 100 workers from this facility who have walked off the line. They walked off at noon, started talking with some of the people as they came out. They all said the same thing. It's our time to get more. We need a lot more, and they do not want to see wage tiers continue. And just to refresh everybody's memory about wage tiers, that's where they hire a worker at a lower wage, and then it takes a number of years for them to make the top wage. The UAW believes that should not be happening. People should be hired at a higher wage, and the amount of time to get to the top wage should maybe be 90 days. That is a major sticking point between the UAW and GM, Stellantis, and Ford. To put this new round of strikes into perspective, it's about 5,625 UAW members at 38 locations in 20 states around the United States. And these are parts distribution centers. What does that mean? These are the locations where they will send parts most of the time, almost all of the time, to dealers. And if the dealers are not getting these parts starting immediately, what we're likely to see, maybe not right away, but over time, is it'll take longer to have certain repairs done at a dealership. And so it's similar to what we saw during COVID, where the dealers, they still stayed open, they did repairs, but if they didn't have the part, they told you, we don't have the part. And for GM and Stellantis, where these new strikes are, increasingly their dealers will not be getting these parts. Frank, I'll send it back to you. Phil, really quick, important to note, Ford up about 2.5%, so it seems like those negotiations are going much better. Uh, Sean Fain, president of the UAW, went to great lengths to say there is improvement between the dis and between GM or between Ford and the UAW when it comes to these contract discussions. However, he also pointed out that there is some major differences that still are on the table while they have improved and they have come together closer together in certain areas they're still a ways apart in others but the fact that we are not seeing more strikes at ford facilities that's an indication that ford clearly is further along with the uaw than gm or stellantis our, our philbo live in michigan phil thank you very much all right coming up we got our chart of the day take a look this e-commerce stock catching a bid after some very bullish commentary out of China. One of our committee members just made a big move in this name. Stick with us. Halftime's back in two minutes.
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back to Halftime. I'm going to get right back to our Phil LeBeau, who is now with UAW President Sean Fain. Phil, over to you. Thank you, Frank. We're outside of Mopar Parts and Distribution Center in Centerline, Michigan. Sean, why, why the Parts and Distribution Center is for this latest round of strikes? Hey, the work, the work our PDCs do is just as important as work anywhere else. And, uh, you know, uh, our PDCs in particular, they've been stepped on a lot in the past. And, uh, you know, they're, a, they're, they're one of the tiers we're talking about. One of our biggest objectives in this round of bargaining is ending tiers. Anyone that hires in at the PDC since 2015 is capped at $25 an hour. They're making less than our typical workers are in big three plants, and it's time we end that. So it's they're a very integral part of what we do, and they deserve their share of economic and social justice just like everybody else does. When we talked with Stellantis earlier this week, Stellantis owning Mopar, they said, look, if we have to close down some facilities, it's because we're trying to make a more efficient organization. What do you say to that and the possibility, whether it's this Mopar facility or another one that they want to close down, what do you say to that? Well, they shouldn't be closing any facilities. These are the best of time. This is the part that, that they're not getting, and this is the part that the, that the world needs to know. But they say these, these workers will still have a job, just not at this facility. Well, you know, and that's it's easy for them to say, but you know what? Tell everybody, to, here's your option. We're going to shut your facility down. Now pack your crap and move yourself miles away to find another job. It's ridiculous. We're better than this. These are the best of times in the history of these companies, and these workers have created these massive profits, and they continue to be left behind and going backwards. That has to stop. Yeah. More than a few people have said, why not hit another assembly plant? Why a parts and distribution center? They're primarily supplying dealers around the country. Why not hit another assembly plant? There's, well, that may, be a, that may be the next step we take. You know, there, There's a lot of options with our stand-up strike strategy, and it's just going to depend on what these companies do. This is uh, our our next move in the process, and uh, I think it's a great move. Um, this is one of the strongest aspects of our membership is these PDCs. They generate a lot of profits, especially for Stellantis. They generate a lot of profits. During the economic recession, these are the people that kept the company going. These are the people that were working seven days a week, 12 hours a day during the recession. So, so they're an important part of the How would you characterize negotiations with Stellantis right now? From the outside, a lot of people think you're farthest away with Stellantis compared to GM and Ford. GM and Ford, or GM and Stellantis are both in the same place, in my opinion. We've we've not made 
progress there, and um, it's unfortunate. They chose, and I want to make this clear, they chose for us to be out here right now. This wasn't a decision we made. This was a company's decision. We came to them at the beginning of bargaining over eight weeks ago with the demands. We gave them everything up front. They waited for over a month to even respond to our economic demands. There's no excuse for that. They, we've told them from the outset, don't wait till the last week. You're going to find yourself in a bad position. And they decided to wait till then. This is all on them. But, Sean, there were leaked messages that came out overnight from uh, someone within the UAW essentially saying, look, we create chaos here. We'll have these guys scrambling around. Give the appearance that you guys want to keep them guessing for an extended period of time, that you want to go on strike seven, eight, nine weeks, whatever the length may be, but not for a week. You don't want to get a resolution. What do you say to that? You know, the people who saw those messages and thought, wait a second, this isn't bargaining in good faith. I, I, say, I say shame on the corporations for putting that BS out there, number one. We have Are been, you saying that's not true? Was that message been, true? We have, the message may be true, but but the, whoever said it, but the point is this. That's not been our, our mission has been to get an agreement before bargaining started. We want our members to get their fair share of economic justice. And when they talk about chaos and all that, we have to plan. We have to plan for the worst case scenario. We had to plan because we know how these companies act, and we know that we, we planned on the fact that they were going to screw around and wait till the end like they always do, instead of getting serious about our members' concerns. So we have a plan in place, and call it chaotic, call it what you want to call it. It's strategic in everything we're doing, and this the companies own this. This is on their shoulders. Everything that's happening right now is on their shoulders. They own it because they chose not to take care of the membership. Sean Fain, president of the UAW, out here at the Mopar Parts and Distribution Center. In all right, so we have some technical difficulties there. Thank you to our Phil LeBeau with that exclusive interview right here on CNBC. Now it's time to get to the headlines with our Bertha Coombs. Bertha. Two adults are dead and more than 40 people injured after a bus crashed Thursday in upstate New York. The bus rolled off a New York interstate and fell down a 50-foot ravine. Preliminary findings show that a faulty front tire may have contributed to the crash. State officials said the bus was carrying students from a Long Island school district to a band camp in Pennsylvania. Five of the students are in critical condition. Federal officials said that for the first time, the U.S. will provide Ukraine with long-range missiles. President Biden told President Volodymyr Zelensky about the small supply fulfilling Ukraine's months-long request for the Army tactical missile system. And new details on the mystery F-35 ejection and crash earlier this week. A 911 call in South Carolina reported an F-35 fighter jet pilot landing in a home's backyard. The homeowner said, I guess we've got a pilot in our house, and he says he got ejected. The pilot also spoke to 911 complaining of back pain and asking for rescuers to be sent. Officials said searchers found debris from the crash in a field about two hours northeast of a military base in Charleston. Halftime Report will be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
All right, welcome back to halftime. Let's get back to our chart of the day. It's Alibaba moving higher, about 5% higher right now, following a report that China is considering easing the cap on foreign investment in their domestic publicly traded companies. Weiss, coming to you, you actually just made a big move with your Alibaba position. Yeah, I wouldn't classify it as big because it wasn't a big position, but it was a position. And the reason I bought it is that I... I you know, believe that the Chinese government would come with a number of measures to inject liquidity into the environment to drive similar to what we've done here, right? We, we're in a recession. They did that. The stock didn't react. Uh, this is more a portfolio move than a BABA move. I will be back in BABA. I think the news that's really driving it today is not necessarily that. It's that they're going to spin off one of their companies to do an IPO. There are five more of those to come. The stock was a tip. When I bought it, it was about eight times earnings. That's why I bought it. This is a portfolio move. I'm well aware of all the risks of variable interest entities. I sued two companies that were them. ICANG and EHI Car Rental, which is the second largest car rental company. So I get all the risk. But away from that, the other reason I sold it is uh, she is off the rails. I mean, he's just going crazy, you know, and uh, he's getting rid of all his ministers. It's unstable there. And then they continue to circle Taiwan with planes. I don't see them invading necessarily, but if they blockade. So all those issues, I said, let me just step back, give my market view and get out. But I will be back into it. There's just too much value there. Really quick, I want to get over to Siege because he actually bought some Alibaba a few weeks ago. But you think there's appetite for a spinoff from Alibaba even after the IPO performances that we've seen over the last week or so? Yeah, it's it's, it's a spinoff in Hong Kong. It's not a spinoff in the U.S. I understand. So, but I mean- so when you own Alibaba, you don't own the assets. You own a revenue stream. That's the VIE. So you will see it. But there's a chance also they say, you know, to the U.S. shareholders, hey, screw you. We're going to give you local shares, you know, in China, in Hong Kong, and this won't exist anymore, this VIE. That's the nuclear thing. So, right. so a combination of reasons I've sold. I All still right. think it's great value there. I still think it'll work out. Just my portfolio positioning. So Weiss believes, by the way, these are Weiss's words, that she's off the rails. See, you actually believe some of these restrictions are going to be very good for Alibaba, and it's making you feel a little bit more bullish about the stock. Yeah, I mean, there's restrictions on businesses in China all the time, and they're, they're increasing, whether it be Nike, whether it be Apple, whether it be today they were talking about makeup restrictions going into China. But you you have a company that is relatively cheap. We think this is a a good way to play it, given all the political risks that that Steve cited. They have a 50% market share, touching 70% of the population. Stock trades at 10 times at a discount to its its long-term average and a 40% discount to the Chinese tech sector. So um, you have policy that's likely to be supportive as well. So we think it's it's kind of an inexpensive way to play it. You have that margin of safety, and that's how we're doing it. I'd so. be much more worried about Tesla, frankly. I mean, you've got the Chinese government, and you've got massive competition in the EVs. China wants to support right. those. To the and if they will do what they did to Apple, think of what they will do to Tesla. So and Tesla's been cutting prices there like crazy. So I think Tesla, if we do see an issue right. with Taiwan, I mean. Well, say goodbye. Yeah. Brent, you're in on Tesla, so do you yeah. agree with what he has to say? No. I mean, I think... <laughs> Why not? That was a quick no. You know what? There's always a possibility, and you would have to put a probability around that, right? So, of course, it could happen, right? right? You're in China. Doesn't that go he, with what they did to Apple, no, the largest employer in the country? But doesn't Elon Musk have a different relationship Apple's, with China? Apple's getting than back. Tim Cook? The, no. The CCP, and let's be clear, this is the CCP, so when you buy these Chinese companies, you're buying a share of the CCP. So, so... Elon has been able to navigate, just like Tim Cook, 
I think, amazingly well, just like Starbucks and Nike. But Apple's ban at the offices was more as an, I think, an affront to Huawei. And so in TikTok here in the U.S., right? Tesla has, you know, the head of Tesla, Shanghai, is, you know, a Chinese local and has done very well. That's so true. Every it's, company right. that's in China, it's, they're it's, all locals. Yeah. It's, it's a risk, but I mean, I would not factor that into my decision to buy or not buy Tesla, that Xi Jinping and his group are going to say no more Teslas being What's sold What's more important, the massive EV industry in China, right, or Tesla? Well, they're, they're two different things that come together because China is, China's 60% of EV sales, right? The U.S. is just like, it's like an asterisk over here, 60% of EV sales. And the risk to, to Tesla is that the CCP, the government, continues to give discounts to those Chinese local automakers. And so Tesla, to keep up, has to lower their prices and that eats into margins, right? right? So that to me is the risk with, with with Tesla right now is in this next right. quarter, what happens to their margins? Not that the CCP comes in and says, you can't sell cars here. Yeah. Well, it's not something that's- I, I think gradual. we have to continue to watch that price war when it comes to EVs in China. Obviously a lot of competition. You have Neo, you have other domestic players right now. What about the competition right here? <laughs> what do you mean with the, the big three automakers? Tesla, yeah. Oh. There is no competition. Yeah, was, like on EVs, there's no competition here? There's Ford, some. A Ford EV. There's a lot. No one wants to buy these other EVs. People want to buy the Tesla EVs. That's just not true. That's just not true. All right, we'll have to agree to disagree. Just, Tesla shares down just about a half a percent right now. Coming up next, we have Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word, halftime. Coming back right after this, the Dow right now up almost a quarter of a percent. As you can see, markets very close to their highs of the day. Welcome back to Halftime. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli now joins us with his midday word. Mike, what are you looking at? Uh, market kind of licking its wounds. Probably uh, got a little bit of relief that bonds have calmed down. Oil's not doing anything special. Still think there's a decent burden of proof that uh, that we found any kind of low. Uh, S&P 500, you know, down 6%-ish from its highs. Uh, average stock probably down 8 to 10% in the S&P 500. It's a proper pullback right now. I just think that we're just barely on a technical level getting oversold. Uh, we obviously have the seasonal sloppiness, and you're probably going to have to see, um, I think, the, the yields maybe reverse lower in a more persuasive way before you have any kind of an all clear. But, you know, uh, the pullback's doing a lot of the work it's supposed to do, which is moderating valuation, getting sentiment a little bit less comfortable. We'll see if it's enough. Let's bring you into our bond conversation. We had Bill Ackman's comments. We had yeah. Jeffrey Gunlock's comments. Gunlock saying that bonds are doubly cheap to stocks right now. Agree? Yeah. Uh, no, um, I just think the math is not remotely precise on these things if you go back over time. First of all, if you're saying stocks are going down because bonds are so attractive, what are bonds doing every day is going down in price. They're, going, they're moving together. It's not like we're buying one to sell the other or vice versa. So I, I think that it's, uh, there's an argument that you need a greater cushion in valuation when rates are higher. Right. It's just not so absolute. The, the levels we're seeing right now in terms of the spread between the two were routine in the 80s and 90s. It's just unusual for the last 20 years. All right, Mike Santoli with his midday word. Mike, thank you very much. Coming up, struggling staples, a sector a big underperformer this year, but could a rebound and be in store as recession risk rises? We're going to break it all the way down when halftime returns. Stay with us.
All right, welcome back to the half. Consumer staples, staples, they have been struggling this year with the sector down 4% and with growing concerns of a coming recession. How do these stocks typically perform in a downturn? Our Dom Chu crunching the numbers for us in today's Sectornomics. Dom? All right, so Frank, the downturn here overall in consumer staples has been juxtaposed with the outperformance in mega cap technology and consumer discretionary, and also, of course, those communication services stocks. But if you take a look at the relative performance overall of some of these types of stocks, the performance gap is pretty wide between those consumer staples and those bigger, broader market names. Now, the data team at Charts took a look at the last three major downturns in the market, the big bear markets back in 2001, 2008, and in 2020 in the wake of the pandemic, and took a look at which consumer staple stocks outperformed on average during that time span and underperformed. So here are some of the names that they found to watch, at least on average over the course of the last downturns that we've seen. The big underperformers on average have been Target down 23% on average, Molson Coors down 23%, and Cisco, the food distributor, down about 26%. Meanwhile, on the other side of the spectrum, these names have on average outperformed during those big economic downturns. The JM Smucker Company up 11% on average, Dollar Tree up 7%, and Walmart up 3%. So as we watch consumer staples, many of these names, yes, do succumb to the broader market and economic moves, but some of the names do hold up better than others on average, Frank, at least over the last three big downturns. I'll send things back over to you guys. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Our Dom Chu with Sectronomics. Shannon, I want to come over to you. What are you thinking about when it comes to staples right now? Uh, clearly a defensive play. And if you think about some of the pressures that we've been talking about, Frank, particularly with the retail reports that we've received over the last couple of weeks, you know, that discretionary income, that pool shrinks when we see a reacceleration of food and energy costs. And so not necessarily surprised to hear some of the names trade down retail, uh, true food retailing, household product retailers, uh, producers, excuse me. Those are really the staples that can, you know, quote unquote, protect from a relative basis during a downturn. The challenge for staples over the last couple of years has been that their margins are very lean. And so if you think about already the margin compression we've experienced as a sector, that's really hurt them in the eyes of investors. But I think you're going to see a shift if we continue to see some of this volatility um, and the disinflationary trends that we're experiencing. Staples could look a lot more expe- more respectable and the valuations look less demanding um, if those costs are expected to continue to decrease. Each any thoughts about staples right now? Yeah, I think this is an important watch, as Dom points out, because the the relationship between discretionary and staples is one that if it were to start to break down, it would show a sign of risk off in the markets. So I do think it's important. All right. Uh, Coming up, we got final trades here on halftime. Stick with us. It's going to be interesting. Final trade. Shannon, we're going to go to you first. Uh, healthcare, only one of only four sectors that are negative year to date, and we've seen a little bit of relative strength recently. Rob? AutoZone sat out the rally this year but continues to execute it. We've owned it for a long time. Weiss? I own puts on Tesla. The first tranche I had are going to expire worthless, so I bought more puts. I'm also short a little bit of the stock. I think it goes lower. Just look at it today in an update. Yeah, down 1%. Bryn, you have the last word. You want to buy energy instead of XLE, which is capped to Chevron and Exxon, RSPG. It's a great equal weight of about 25 names, more mid-cap than large-cap. All right, that's going to do it for halftime. We have the exchange starting right now. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.